In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews Stephen Janis, an award-winning police reporter who successfully made the leap from print to video journalism. Here's a snippet from their conversation. And this is going to sound really weird, but I would urge everybody who whoever who who has a chance to try to work for a local newspaper for at least a couple, you know, try it somehow, some sort of local media institution. Give it a shot. Um, I know it's not everyone aspires to cover national politics or have ten thousand million Twitter followers, but you know the the insight you gain into human nature, human psyche, and just the functioning of the democratic process by working at a local newspaper and, or a local media outlet or a local website is, is just profound. And there's nothing like it. And I've worked, you know, I worked, I started out as a fact checker for Esquire magazine. So I, I've been on national level, but there's nothing like a local being like, you know, having to like cover that story about, you know, someone getting shot or, you know, the accident or the city council, you know, not some city council person running up his expense account. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it seems mundane, but once you're in it, I promise you, you'll never want to do anything else. Well, hello there, and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you. Thanks, Zoe. Stephen Janis is an investigative reporter whose career experience includes print and video journalism. He's the director of The Friendliest Town, a video documentary about the first black police chief of a small racially divided town in the state of Maryland. The documentary examines how the new chief lowered the town's crime rate by implementing community-style policing, but was then abruptly fired, leading to accusations of bigotry and racism. Stephen has also written three books about the philosophy of policing, and to say that he is immersed in his subject would be an understatement. Stephen is a journalist who genuinely understands the strange, complex, and convoluted world of police work. So, Stephen, what drew you to covering the police? Policing is the only game in town in Baltimore. You know, every every town sort of has its power centers. And because policing is the best funded institution in the city, uh, that's where all the action was. And of course, you know, also many of our politicians from Mayor Martin O'Malley on down, who was mayor in the aughts, uh, you know, have staked their reputation on reducing crime. Because as everybody knows, Baltimore is one of the most violent cities in the country. So, ergo, you know, if you don't cover policing and policing, if you're not sort of on top of it, you're not really on top of the biggest story in town. Um, and, you know, Baltimore is a perfect example of a city that's probably invested most of its cultural and, and you know, civic resources into this institution. So this institution wields power, and it wields power in a way that's extremely unusual in terms of having a very strong political economy, which is what we like to talk about in journalism, where, you know, the police have a lot of money, they put it back in the political system, and they sort of, you know, have a huge say in, in, in the political system. The, the police union, the FOP, it's called, Fraternal Order Police, you know, wields tremendous power in the electoral process. So as a reporter, you either cover it or you don't. And of course, you know, everybody knows Baltimore for the Wire, which is very police-centric show, you know, told pretty much from the perspective of a police officer. So, you know, all that in cumulative meant that you kind of had to cover the police department or you weren't really covering anything in the city. And, and this is unfortunate because it's not something I really wanted to do. You know, again, those of us who've come up through the ranks of newspaper journalism are mm-hmm. aware that usually the first, you know, your first beat is the police beat. That, absolutely true. 
And, yeah. and so that's like totally normal. You do obits and police, f- obits, fires and police. Yeah, back in the day. Um, <laughs> the, you know, one thing people don't understand, and I think it's an interesting axiom about policing that, that perhaps some people don't really get, is that police in cities like Baltimore are the biggest storytellers in town, right? I mean, getting a hold of a police document, you know, of, a, of, a, of charging documents tells a story. And in Baltimore City, for example, during the aughts, they were arresting 100,000 people a year. So police were putting out more stories than any other institution in town. You know, I, I would write about these crazy arrests where, like, I wrote, I broke a story about a seven-year-old who got arrested riding his bike. You know, I, wrote, I broke a story about a preacher who was driving back from church who got arrested. Police are storytellers. They tell stories about us, especially in a town that's heavy on criminalizing. And that's what Baltimore is. I mean, it's like an industry, and they're telling the most stories, so you've got to be on them stories if you want to really you know be in the mix that's just a, such a great observation when i was speaking with paul page uh who uh who worked at the star ledger for many years and newark is is also a, a police heavy city right um, absolutely absolutely the, um you know one of the things we talked about is this uh you know the relationship between journalists and persons of uh, who are in positions of authority and you know why is yeah. it that the the journalists um, and you just answered that which is that the politicians and the cops have the stories they do and uh, and it's true it's like you know while while there's a, to a certain extent the stereotype of the taciturn silent cop is you know <laughs> like valid but then for every that's not then true there are a couple of yeah then those are the stories that you remember oh. 40 40 years later somebody telling you a story let me tell you something cops love to talk okay? <laughs> it's true you know i when when i was definitely heavy and especially when i was writing about police corruption 10 15 years ago i i, I couldn't turn my phone i couldn't get off the phone the idea of the strong silent type police officer they love to gossip they love to talk about each other i mean my phone would just go off all night long so no that is a that is a total myth and it is not true cops love to talk <laughs> and thank god for that yes uh, agreed that, uh, that's really good but why is it important for journalists to focus attention on the interactions between the police and the communities they are you know hired to protect well, and serve one of the things that you see in Baltimore, um, and of course, this was a subject of my documentary, was that when when the relationship between the police department and and the community, you, you, we always talk about trust. We say trust is important, and it seems very ephemeral, right? But once that relationship breaks down to the point where the police is considered to be sort of an occupying force. Um, you know, you see that policing kind of becomes frozen in place. It can't really achieve its goals, you know. And one of the things people don't understand about Baltimore City, you know, like many places in the country, it's bifurcated between both race and, and wealth. And in the poorest parts of the city, the only form of governance people really see are police officers. So if police officers are viewed as hostile or as um, unfair or unjust or corrupt, that means that people's perception of the entire form of governance is is viewed as corrupt and therefore they disengage and and you have a city that sort of is policed like it's not even part of the city and it becomes a bifurcated community so with police having such a huge presence in place like baltimore if they're not trusted and perceived as being doing good by the community uh the system of governance breaks down in many cases and, and you have a very hostile um relationship and you also have people who really um take themselves out of the political process and so it, it becomes you know sort of a um polarized community that can't really function and tackle problems um, holistically. That makes total sense. And uh, and again, you've articulated that really well, because uh, it, it's hard for many of us to understand uh, that in 
many urban communities, the police uh, are the world uh, in mm. a sense, and or your uh, your impressions of the world, your experiences of the outside world are you know yeah. are all mediated by your relationships I with mean, the cops. I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, as we were talking about, which is right down the road from where you are. Mm-hmm. I never had encountered a police officer for eight, you know, till till I hadn't maybe once or twice in my entire life as a child growing up. Whereas if you're a young African-American child in Baltimore City, where police are arresting 100,000 people, you see police every day in your community arresting people, running into houses, you know, raiding, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. So police are like the way you come to view the world and governance. And so that that's why, you know, the trust between police and the community is so important. That's why in Baltimore, when it broke down, it became so destructive. So, Stephen, you began your career as a print journalist, and then yep. later you transitioned to video. What was right. it like to shift from one form of storytelling to another? And was it a smooth transition? How did you make that happen? Well, I tell you, it was really, really stunning because it's almost like everything you've learned from being a print journalist, you just kind of throw it out the window. I think I had an advantage because I had a basis in print, but I remember I was in, a t- I, I got a job. See, basically what happened was like many people, I worked at a newspaper that just shut its doors. And so I was uh, looking for work and I be- got very lucky that a television station liked my investigative work and they wanted me to work as investigator, <clears throat> but I had to learn how to write for TV. And it, it's so different. You know, you can't even really describe how I, I went in and I remember the first television story I wrote, they were like, what the hell is this? This is seven <laughs> minutes long. What are you doing? This is crazy. And so <clears throat> over time, excuse me, you learn how the medium interacts with the wor- with, with what you're writing and you learn, you know, video is an extremely powerful storytelling, um, you know, medium, but you have to be you have to approach it differently because it's so performative, you know, it, it it's the, the visuals are dramatic in themselves and you have to always sort of be in abeyance of the visuals. You can't just write what you want. And, and so it was really like a crash course for me because it was entirely different. You know, I, I was not at all prepared for it. And, and I, but you know, I was very lucky to have that opportunity because really there weren't a lot of jobs, you know, people aren't starting newspapers, so there weren't a lot of jobs. So it was really, um, quite lucky and but it was definitely like trial by fire you know i definitely had to develop a whole new set of skills one of the things i love about doing these interviews with uh, journalists and writers is that uh, is that we are able to articulate yeah you know stuff and and a lot of it is is painful uh and yet yeah. we we managed to bring it to the surface anyway and uh, so yeah. uh, so anyway with that <laughs> yeah with that sorry that self-congratulatory uh, nonsense no, no, no. we'll move it's to true. it's true <laughs> Yeah. We tell a lot of painful stories. It's part of our job and it's part of who we are. And, you know, especially in a city where there's a tremendous amount of tragedy like Baltimore, um, you know, it, it's it's an inevitable part of the trade that you have to be willing to immerse yourself in misery to a certain extent and be willing to communicate in a way that has context so that there's some, I guess, meaning to this process. But sometimes it, it can seem meaningless. I mean, especially in Baltimore, where 300 people are murdered every year, it can seem extremely you know, futile sometimes, but you feel like you have to do it because someone has to be witness to this, even if it is horrible. So yes, it is part of the, part of the job. No, that's true. It would be worse if no one, it would be worse if it happened in darkness. Yeah. I think, you know, for me and not to like get too much into it, but the story that really taught me that was I had been working on investigation into the murder of women who were sex workers in Baltimore and I spent a great deal of time in the neighborhoods where the woman would walk around and, you know, pick up customers. And, um, you know, there was supposedly a serial killer at work. And it's a long story. 
I mean, eventually someone was arrested. But at the time I spent with these women, I realized that nobody listens to them. You know, nobody, nobody talks to them because, you know, they're spurned. Even though 90% of them had been sexually abused as a child, turned to drugs to, you know, sort of treat an untreated mental health condition and, and the pain they felt because they had been abused, but that no one ever talked to them. I remember going up to a young woman who was on a corner and I just said, hey, how are you doing? And she broke down into tears because no one had ever asked her how she felt. People, men would just pick her up and give her 40 bucks to, you know, do something sexual and just dump her on the corner. And just the fact that someone went up to her and said, how are you? She, she broke into tears. And I, you know, I think we should never underestimate the power of having someone being paid or someone whose job it is to listen to people that no one wants to listen to. That, that's pretty much like a sacred responsibility in my, my estimation. And I think it's something that people don't realize why it's so important to have journalists in the community. No, and you're raising also a really good point, which is uh, there should be more uh, mental health outreach people mm -hmm. on the street in every mm -hmm. city. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why uh, police are, I think, are rightfully angry about being forced to play the role of mental health. Absolutely. You know, what do you want to call there? They are the front lines of our mental health system. And that's... Yep. That's tragic. That, that's not saying much for our mental health system, or it's saying everything about how screwed up, how incredibly, what an incredibly bad job we're doing of managing mental health. I completely agree. Completely agree. Yeah. And it's just we're giving, you know, we're telling, uh, we're telling cops to hear, you know, because I, as you know, you know, most police calls involve, um, you know, either, <laughs> either kitchen fires, uh, or you know, or, or domestic spats, or, or dogs Absolutely. getting loose or mental health issues that have yep. gone unresolved. And finally, somebody says, you have to get my son or my daughter or my husband or my wife out of here. And then it's up to the cops to get pry them out of wherever they are and transport them to a hospital. And that's where problems happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So but so, Stephen, uh, please talk to us about the friendliest town and okay. uh, walk us through the process of, um, of making a video documentary. Sure. Well, one of the things, like I said, you know, we were talking about the transition from um, video to print. One of the things you learn pretty early on in video is an extremely powerful storytelling medium, but um, you have to get out of the way of it, uh, so to speak. I think as print journalists, we tend to feel like we have to fill in all the blanks. You know, <laughs> it's, it's our job to create this universe in your mind. But with film, you know, you already have the visuals. So your, your storytelling has to be really, really simple and very, very, very attenuated. Otherwise, it can get very sloppy and complex. So just that little note. So when, uh, so I'd written a book with a homicide detective called Kelvin Sewell, who had retired and we wrote a book about police corruption and all the things he experienced in homicide, working in homicide in 2011. So he retires, he moves down to a small town on Maryland's Lower Eastern Shore called Pocomoke. And one of the things that we had talked about and he had talked about with me was wanting to kind of change the way policing was done um, that he had experienced in Baltimore. Because, you know, as we said before, there was this great, you know, sort of divide between the community and policing. So he goes to Pocomoke and says, you know, I'm going to change it. It's a small town, racially divided, 4,000 people, 2,000 white, 2,000 African American. And he comes up with this plan to do what he calls really intensive community policing, where he uh, gets out of the car, orders his officers to get out of their cars and walk in the community, in specifically in an African American community called Backburn, that had been neglected and been subject to the same sort of, you know, um, militarized policing that we see in many African American communities. And 
it really, really worked. Uh, you know, he really became integrated into the community and he really got the community to work with him. And it was really fascinating because I had never seen this before in covering policing in Baltimore. I, I actually saw policing work and crime went down. There were no homicides, you know, really, I think a great success story. And then in 2015, he calls me and says, Stephen, they're going to fire me. And I was completely stunned. At the time, I was working at a video news service called the Real News Network, and I said, hey, can I go down and cover this? And, you know, I get down there, and there's a big council meeting about him being fired, and literally like half the town, it turned out, and they were all in support of Chief Sewell. Uh, and to me, that was like stunning, because I'm, I'm like, I've never, ever seen this. I've never seen a police officer have this kind of communal support. So what is this about? And then, of course, there was the other question is, why are they firing him? Which is a whole nother story. So at that moment, I thought, you know, this is a perfect opportunity to sort of do a documentary. Now, looking back on it, that might have been a mistake, because it turned out to be a five-year odyssey to, you know, create a film, which is not an easy thing to do. But the story has many twists and turns. And, you know, eventually uh, he, he, he alleges that it was discrimination and, and racial retaliation. And then they end up prosecuting him. So it's a really uh, twisted story, but a story about how, you know, something extremely like productive policing, how race in this country often intervenes in, in good things and turns them into very fraught things. So that's kind of the backstory, not to get into too much detail. No, that's good. That's great. It sounds like a uh, like a worthy project, and uh, you know, spiraling out of control is uh, is a, is an occupational yeah. hazard here. Because, right, uh, right. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, the best stories always uh, <laughs> the best right. stories always spiral out of control because yeah, they've had a lot of twists. Yeah, uh, now you know, reality uh, resists uh, simple narrative devices. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, and I mean, you know, for me, you know, I've, I've written some books and done some a lot of things, but a documentary was also just personally like kind of a challenge that uh, uh, I never thought I would even try, let alone. I mean, it's it's I don't know if I succeeded, but, you know, we got picked up by Gravitas, which is a national distributor. And we've had some really good reviews. And, you know, so I feel like I at least succeeded in getting the story out there and telling it in a way that. You know, as you know, we all do this because we want to tell stories. That's the basic reason, right? That's why you become a reporter. Mm, yeah. That's why you do this. So this was like the ultimate storytelling challenge, right? Can can I make a film good, a good film, and tell a story from beginning to end in a way in depth that it deserved? And that's why I did it. And I, you know, hopefully I succeeded. Well, it sounds like you did. So, uh, so, so congratulations on that. Thanks. And uh, and you've you you mentioned that you. Um, that you've also written books. So you've written three yeah. books. Uh, can you yeah. tell us about them? And Yeah, sure. Well, so the first one, like I said, I wrote with Kelvin called Why Do We Kill the Pathology of Murder in Baltimore? And that was really looking from his perspective on, on some of his worst cases and trying to, you know, understand the underlying imperative of why murder is such a commonplace, um, you know, um, event here in Baltimore. And that, that was my first book. And then two other books with a homicide detective called you Can't Stop Murder, Truths About Policing in Baltimore and Beyond, and The Book of Cop, A Testament to Policing That Works. This was with a homicide detective who worked in the 70s, and I thought both uh, his perspectives were interesting because policing had changed so much since he had left the force, and plus he was involved in some incredible cases, you know, like a sniper that we, we had. Uh, there, I don't want to go into all the cases, but there are some amazing cases that he was involved in, and so, you know, it was really a way to go back in time and to show how policing had evolved, make some commentary on policing because all the books I call them philosophy of policing books because I I try to get at the philosophy of policing that the detectives I write with sort of have and use it as a prism to sort of examine the cases because I think 
you know, there is a philosophy behind policing. And policing is not just this monolithic sort of institution. There are individuals trying to do it well. And there are individuals who don't do it well. And, you know, I think it's important to illustrate or at least highlight the people that have at least a humane and compassionate approach or at least a productive approach to policing. And, and so bo- all books try to sort of expound upon their theories of policing in the context of the cases they worked with, of course, you know, as you know, good stories or bad stories, really, because they're murders. But um, I hope I kind of try to balance between the two. Good, good. So, uh, Stephen, who are your role models? Who inspires you? Oh. Oh, well, this might sound really strange, but the person that I read that I, I, (laughs) as a writer who I really enjoy is Kafka because (laughs) that makes sense. (laughs) Makes total sense. Yeah. Well, you know, it's (laughs) because I, I, I've used him in multiple situations, you know, from the trial, you know, like the absurdity of the trial, like, you know, because I spend so much time in courtrooms and, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you see the, you have to be inside the criminal justice system, especially in a place like Baltimore that is turned to, to solve so many social problems to realize how absolutely um, absurd it can be. And I mean, I think Kafka was a humorist as well as, you know, a realist. And I, he, he just sort of showed the frailty of human efforts to come up with some way to organize reality, as you as you pointed out, right? Like reality, as we learn as reporters, never conforms to, um, to you know, our expectations of trying to write like 500 words, right? And explain something. It just always comes up with some twist. And I think Kafka was best at understanding the absurdity of trying to sort of create some sort of uniform bureaucracy around life, whether it be reporting or anything. And, and, and so I, I honestly have cited him many times and used him many times. And um, I think the metamorphosis as a, as a story is, is one, of the, one of the interesting things about it is when he wakes up, when Samson wakes up and says, you know, when he becomes a cockroach or whatever it is, they, they say, he never really acknowledges that. Um, you know, he just he just sort of gets upset about the problems of being a bug, but never really thinks about that I am a bug. And I think that's sort of illustrative of what we see in places like Baltimore, where there's a lot of denial that goes into, you know, the way we have decided to manage the misery and the poverty and the things. There's a lot of self-denial. And so I find that it's good to have those kind of writers in your back of your mind like hey you know we're not just reporting facts we're adding context and meaning to these things so having someone like the, uh, Kafka to reference is I don't know it seems weird but it's kind of what I what uh, to me to me that makes total sense and also uh, thank you for sharing that uh, I thought that was a wonderful insight um, in, thank you. Uh, into the metamorphosis because uh, that, that hadn't right we, we tend to just focus on the you know uh, yeah. I woke up one morning and I was a bug you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> not on like why did this happen and right and, exactly uh, you know absolutely yeah. absolutely yes that's a great point that's a great it's, point. Um, it's which is more makes it even more frightening because uh, you know very true <laughs> it should be all right, we're all well hopefully we're not hopefully we're not heading in that we're not hopefully we're not all heading in that direction no i don't think so uh, so <laughs> Stephen, and thank you this is this is a great conversation that's why i love thank these you. conversations this is wonderful Absolutely. it's been a lot of fun thank you so what brings you the greatest joy as a journalist well i mean you know i think we all no matter i, I think everyone who becomes a journalist is sort of a an optimist in some levels. I know that sounds really weird, but we all kind of feel like, well, you know, we could sit in the corner and write, you know, fictive stories, but by being out in the world and communicating that somehow something good is going to come out of it, you know, something better, or that there's going to be some change. And, and you know, it, it, it doesn't always work out. But, you know, I, I, one of the things when I was working on that sex worker story, the police actually ended up making an arrest of a man who had murdered 
two women and almost killed another. And, um, you know, you got to feel like you, you contributed something because they, they reopened the investigation because of my reporting and then they made an arrest. And I don't want to see anybody get arrested, but, you know, this guy was <laughs> really, really a horrible person. And so those small moments when you feel like, you know, you've made a difference in someone's life. And I know this sounds kind of, you know, what everybody says, but I think it's the people who think it's trite have never experienced it, right? Because when you you go out and you write and you write and you write and then something, you know, some person's life is incrementally improved or some process is incrementally improved or someone's water bill that was outrageous is actually overturned and they, they get to keep their house. Uh, that that's definitely like makes it all worthwhile. And I don't think I don't think people should underestimate that. I think I think that's that's one of the beautiful things about journalism and why journalism is important and why I think people have to support j- local journalism. It's it's so important and uh so being able to contribute in those small ways helps tremendously me personally um it's better than being like you know self-absorbed or you know (laughs) that's true they often accuse uh accuse all writers of being self-absorbed but i think actually we're we're kind of the opposite i think we're absolutely the opposite we're always paying attention yeah if there's someone in the room paying attention to everybody it's the person who's who's writing right absolutely not it's not um you know, no, we, we always are. We pay too much attention, I think, sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's this is definitely this is definitely true. The I think it was Henry James who said uh, a writer is someone on whom nothing is lost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I spend so much time divining what people's motives are for things. And, you know, it, it almost becomes absurd. But that's what we and we end up being trained to do on some level is just watch people and try to figure out why they're doing what they're doing. <laughs> you know? So um, but it can be fun. I would encourage anybody to try it who, who hasn't. Well, that that's a perfect segue into uh, into our uh, last question here, which is okay. uh, what advice do you have for young people who are interested oh. in journalism careers? Oh wow. It's a it's a tough world out there right now and and you know I've I've taught journalism and I feel somewhat what's the word I mean it's exciting world in in terms of there's much more ability for you to go out and make your own way into the world without you know without having to work with a, for a large institution but you know I would I and mean, this is going to sound really weird but I would urge everybody who whoever who who has a chance to try to work for a local newspaper for at least a couple you know try it somehow some sort of local media institution give it a shot um I know it's not everyone aspires to cover national politics or have 10,000 million Twitter followers but you know the the insight you gain into y- human nature human psyche and just the functioning of a demo- the democratic process by working at a local newspaper and or a local media outlet or a local website is is just profound and there's nothing like it and I've worked you know I worked I started out as a fact checker for Esquire magazine so I, I've been on national level but there's nothing like a local being like you know having to like cover that story about you know someone getting shot or you know the accident or the city council you know not some city council person running up his expense account I mean, it, it seems mundane, but once you're in it, I promise you, you'll never want to do anything else. You know, it's, <laughs> if it's really it's, meant for you, you'll never true. want to do anything else. No, that's a, and that's, of course, that's how I can tell, uh, you know, if I'm 
in the old days when we would be socializing, uh, you know, if I did run into a fellow reporter, we would wind up, you know, talking about the zoning board of appeals. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's <laughs> yeah. fascinating and non fat, but, it, but you know, it has real impact on people's lives. Oh, absolutely. No, until, yeah. until you've seen someone stand up and make an impassioned speech about mm-hmm. why, why are you preventing me from putting a gas station on my property here? It is. Right, right, right. Because it's right next to a school right. <laughs> and a hospital. Right. And it's a residential residential area and it's not zoned for gas stations and then the guy and that's what's wrong with america today is that we can't put a gas station in our front yard what does this world come to and until you've actually seen that and heard it with your own eyes and you realize that that the person has a completely you know from his perspective it's like why shouldn't i have a gas station on my front lawn absolutely you realize (laughs) that you know it's a very complex process it's very messy and that you know we have to pay attention to make it work so yeah so that's what i encourage everyone to do i i don't really have any advice in terms of how to get the a job or, or even if that's a viable path because it, journalism is shifting, you know, every second it's changing. So, um, but I would say try to just cover something and, and have the experience of that. So you understand, you know, what it's about and what it means and why it's worth pers- preserving. Excellent. Well, this has been, Stephen, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah. And, thank uh, you. I love talking enjoyable. about this stuff. Yeah. It's, it's a, I'm, I think it's a great idea to have a podcast to talk about these things because <laughs> they don't get talked about enough. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, and it is, there is something wonderful about being out there and, and talking to people. Um, mm-hmm. In one of the, the earlier podcasts uh, with, um, I interviewed another Baltimore journalist, uh, Kevin Cowherd. Yes, uh, absolutely. I went to high school with him. <laughs> one of the things that, uh, that we were talking about is the, that early reticence that you have about asking difficult questions. Oh, yeah. It just seems, yeah. you know, it's like, well, you know, I, I was brought up to be polite to people. And you know, <laughs> now I'm asking them, you know, like some difficult question. And, uh, and and what Kevin said was, well, you learn that it's, (laughs) you learn that if you don't ask the question, your editor is going to be much worse (laughs) to you than the source could possibly be. (laughs) No, no, no. Like having to get up in that press conference in front of everybody else and like ask the mayor or the governor, you know, that is a (laughs) interesting moment (laughs) when you, when you really have to go counter to all your instincts, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But if you don't do it, because, you know, the way I learned that lesson was that I would, of course, chicken out from asking the tough questions. Then my my editor, who you know, would say, no, we're not going to run this story until you ask the question. So, like, get on the then you're calling the person up at 11 o'clock at night and then they're really pissed at you. (laughs) (laughs) Do it early. You know, (laughs) get it out of the way. (laughs) Okay. All right. Steve, this is great. That was my conversation with Stephen Janis, an investigative journalist and documentary filmmaker. I enjoyed speaking with Stephen, and I was fascinated by the story of how he transitioned from print to video journalism. No matter what medium you're working in, it's all about the story. That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.